0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. We're finishing up the discussion tonight um, from chapter 7 in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart really simple topic. We're talking about the power of mindfulness and how something seemingly so simple like being calm, being clear, being awake, how something as simple as that can be so profoundly liberating. And uh, so we talked about it about this the last couple of weeks. Tonight will be the last and then we'll move on to the next chapter. And tonight I want to use an article written by Jnana Pamika Thera, a well-known Buddhist monk. He's passed away recently, the last few years. Um, a German monk who went to Sri Lanka a while back and did a lot of translation and practice in Sri Lanka for a number of decades. And he has an article you can download online called The Power of Mindfulness. And in that article, he talks about four aspects of mindfulness a way of thinking about or understanding the power, the liberating power of mindfulness. How something simple like clear, relaxed presence takes care of us in the deepest sense. And of course, the real, you know, the real way to get a sense of the liberating power of mindfulness is to practice being mindful and to see for ourselves whether it's helpful or not. How it works, how it's helpful, what gets in the way. Of course, a lot of the practice, the path of practice is just understanding what mindfulness is. I mean, it's really easy to try to be mindful as a means to be free. So we're caught in something. We're angry at somebody or really wanting something to happen in our life, wanting a relationship to work out or wanting something at our job to work out, really caught in that craving. And then it occurs to us, well, I should be mindful. I'm suffering and mindfulness is the cure for suffering. So and a lot of times you know we bring that attitude but it doesn't have the effect you know we want that release from the tension in the mind or from the gripping in the mind and body and we don't get it and we might even get might even get worse you know being so-called mindful so a lot of the practices have basically seen like what we're taking mindfulness to be in a way we're learning how Uh, to discover, to realize that state, that way of being, that is liberating, that is free. And sometimes we just stumble upon it, like we're in a situation and we just notice that we're relating with a lot of skill, a lot of clarity, and a lot of freedom, a lot of release. And then we can look, we can, in a sense, be interested in that attitude, in that way of being, oh, maybe this is what the Buddha meant by being mindful. It's part of mindfulness, especially in how we normally use the word, that includes a lot, includes the deepest kind of wisdom, the wisdom of not clinging, as I suggested in the sit. So anyway, in this article, Jnana Panika mentions four aspects of mindfulness. The first is sort of an interesting comment. He says, mindfulness has this ability to tidy up the psychic space. He doesn't use the word psychic space. He says just the mind. But we have this space of our mind. And he describes it, and this probably will be familiar to all of us, it's like the twilight space of the mind. We're so busy. So caught up in our different routines and our different reactive patterns, and exhausted by all of our activity or pushing and pulling in life, that our mind, the psychic space, is in this twilight state. It's not very clear. It's like uh, half light. And you know how it is, you know, like now, or when it gets even a little bit darker, it's like we can negotiate, we can avoid obvious things, you know, we don't bump in, but we really don't know what's around us. You know, there may be an object on the ground, but we really don't understand what it is. And this is how it is a lot of the time for us. So in this this particular example, this particular aspect of mindfulness is really pointing to the illuminating quality of mindfulness. So we can be going about our day. And then, for whatever reason, we become more mindful. And we'll notice how what was indistinct, what was unclear, becomes illuminated. Oh, this is how I feel. This is how the heart is. This is what's going on. This is how it is now in this situation. And to really recognize that particular aspect of mindfulness. I mean, so much of um, having confidence and having the energy to, direct, to uh, develop the practice is seeing its power, understanding what it does, how it protects us. And to see directly how it tidies up, how it illuminates the space of the mind. It illuminates what's moving. And it's so we know this, how this is. We can go through the day in a depressive state, in an anxious state, in a needy state, and we can be completely oblivious. Everybody else around us will know, oh, Mark's like this today, you know, he's in, oh, yeah, I know that habit of Mark's or that mind state of Mark. But we can be completely oblivious to it so much of the time. We don't realize we're defensive or we don't realize, you know, that we're manipulating the situation that we're needy in some way. But if we have the wherewithal to be mindful, it just is so apparent what the mind is doing, how it's relating, how it might, the particular pattern pattern of struggling with experience. And that being illuminated, seeing that, creates a lot of choices that otherwise wouldn't be there. If we're not aware, that we're defensive. There's no way to be skillful with the defensiveness. We're basically just trapped in it, acting it out blindly. It's like the example being, you know, if we're walking around in the twilight and we see a shape on the ground that looks like a snake, you know, it seems so appropriate to freak out and to take a stick and beat it or to run away. You know, and but in a moment of mindfulness, It illuminates. We see it's, well, it's just a a rope or, you know, it's just whatever it is, but it's not dangerous. It really takes care of us, just that simple illumination. I'll just read a little bit from this article. It is the daily little negligence in thoughts, words and deeds going on for many years of our lives and as the Buddha teaches for many existences that is chiefly responsible for the untidiness and confusion we find in our minds. This negligence creates the trouble and allows it to continue. Thus the old Buddhist teachers have said, (coughs) negligence produces a lot of dirt as in the house so in the mind only a very little dirt collects in a day or two but if it goes on for many years it will grow into a vast heap of refuse and the way that you know manifests for us is it becomes our character like if we go about our lives not being mindful then the little refuse from just not not being present not being away that's just one thing, but if day after day after day we're not aware of being defensive, we're not aware of being neurotic in this way or that way, then it gets deeply entrenched, it becomes a very uh, deeply habituated pattern. Now the wonderful thing about mindfulness is, like a room that's been shut off from the light for a long time, if you light a candle in that room, It is immediately illuminated. Doesn't matter how dark the room has been or how long the room has been dark. As soon as you put a light in it, the darkness is dispelled. And that's how it is too with mindfulness. It's just immediately we see it. And there's a real power in this tidying up function of mindfulness. It's empowering for us to see what in the past we haven't seen or what the tendency is to not see and then all of a sudden to be able to see. And I'm sure you've had this experience in certain particular kinds of situations where you've been mostly running on automatic pilot out of neurotic habit energy and all of a sudden you're just more aware of what's going on and how many degrees of freedom we have now that in the past we didn't have. Like especially things like interpersonal relationships where in certain situations we tended to be blind and now we tend to be less blind. And why? Well, we have this capacity now to be aware, to be mindful, oh, this particular pattern, this particular character pattern is being triggered and it's like this. So, But now we're mindful that these different habit patterns are being triggered it, and We're aware of it. We're aware of the lay of the land. Oh, it's like this. And if I go this way, this is likely to happen. If I go this way, this other thing is likely to happen. So one aspect of this tidying up is just this capacity, this talent we have to notice or to name what's going on. And some traditions of meditation practice some techniques really emphasize this noticing or this naming. In the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition of practice, they actually will, uh, the teachers will ask the students to name what's predominant. And it, every time you name, like if the mind is fallen into the habit of judging, being critical, then you know in a moment of mindfulness, there's an awakening. You know, we notice the mind is judging, and as a way of in a sense framing the experience so that we can see it clearly we say, ah, judging, judging is like this it's just judging being known, it's like putting a frame so there's a very clear illumination seeing, oh it's like this, this is what's predominant in the mind right now aching, hearing, so you can experiment whether you formally name predominant experience, as the technique goes, or you're just basically developing mindfulness, which is to notice how it is, to be clear. It's like this. The practice is really the same. It's just whether the formal naming is supporting the being awake, the tidying up of what's going on, seeing clearly what's predominant. But in any case, I think it's useful, especially in daily life practice, to be able, in a moment, to notice and maybe even to name the predominant attitude or emotion in the mind space. Like, is it neutral? Is it agitated? I mean, at that, at the very least, at that level, we should be able to immediately, in a moment of mindfulness, recognize. Is the heart of mind agitated? Is the heart of mind at ease? If it's agitated, is it agitated due to craving? Is it agitated due to aversion or fear? Is it agitated due to a disconnecting, a kind of wanting to withdraw, not be connected with how it is? So what's the agitation about? If the mind is at ease, is it completely at ease? Or is there still some... Like, even though it's really in a nice place, you know, there's minds happy or clear or relaxed, is it completely clear? Is it completely relaxed? Is it fully happy? Right? So, we can even, mindfulness will even reveal whether happy, wholesome states are completely, fully wholesome, partially wholesome, you know, or just a little, (laughs) just not as bad as it used to be. And all of this is, this is useful information. And it's the not being aware of kind of the lay of the land, moment by moment, that it's like driving blind. You know, We're in that twilight. We don't really, how could we possibly respond appropriately, moment by moment, when we're not aware of what's moving, what's alive, what's how it is. And the second, so that's the first, is mindfulness's uh, capacity to illuminate or to tidy up the mental space. The second one that um, the scholar, this practicing monk scholar, talks about is mindfulness's non-coercive, non-violent manner. And this I, I find really important. This is really important because it's very instructive for us. It really helps us understand what mindfulness is. And that's what I mentioned at the beginning. A lot of our practice for a long time, I I find that I'm still in this place. So I've been practicing pretty diligently for 28 years now. And I'm still deepening my understanding of what it means to be mindful and how mindfulness is liberating. So, this isn't just like beginners in the first year, but beginning practice for a long time, maybe lifetimes, who knows. But one very instructive aspect of mindfulness that we need to uncover is this this, this sort of metta, the loving-kindness that is not different than mindfulness. Mindfulness is not an aggressive procedure. And a lot of times we use mindfulness as a club to get rid of what we don't like or to make something happen. It's a control mechanism. And you know, on some level it even if it's used in that inappropriate way, it it has some effect, so we can be especially diluted by using mindfulness as a club or as a way of manipulating, controlling experience. Of course, it's not ultimately mindfulness. So right from the beginning, it's really nice to get this instruction and to find a way to um, hold on to it. This is a, a useful thing to hold on to. The sort of importance of nonviolence, just incorporating that value deeply, not just in terms of, you know, I don't hit my partner or I don't, you know, kick the cat, but understanding this commitment to nonviolence in the deepest way, like how we relate to our experience, the attitude the mind states, the mental qualities, and anything that has the quality of violence, aggression, we should be suspect. You know, we should really look carefully to see is it leading to happiness? Is it leading to a sense of release from what's afflictive? Or is it actually the cause of affliction? Let me read a little bit. Again, when he's talking about this uh, second part. When faced by inner and outer disturbances, the inexperienced or uninstructed beginner will generally react in two ways. He will first try to shove them away lightly. And if he fails in that, he will try to suppress them by sheer force of will. But these disturbances are like insolent flies. By whisking, first lightly, and then with increasing vigor and anger, one one may perhaps succeed in driving them away for a while, but usually they return with an exasperating constancy. And the effort and vexation of whisking will have produced only an additional disturbance of one's composure. Satipatthana, or mindfulness, through its method of bare attention, offers a nonviolent alternative to those futile and even harmful attempts at suppression by force. A successful nonviolent procedure in mind control has to start with the right attitude. There must be first the full cognizance and sober acceptance of the fact that these three disturbing factors are co-inhabitants of the world we live in, whether we like it or not. Or disapproval of them will not alter the fact with some we shall we shall have to come to terms and concerning the others the mental defilements we shall have to learn how to deal with them effectively until they are finally conquered so he talks about the three things that disturb the mind external disturbances such as noise or I guess you could even say pain in the body and the sense is an external disturbance Then there are mental disturbances, like not liking the pain in the knee, or not liking the disturbing sound, or just not liking the thoughts, or wanting things to be other than they are. So any kind of greed, or aversion, or delusion, would be any aspect of those three roots would be considered a defilement. And then there's a third kind of defilement, which is, or disturbance, which is just sort of like a basic restlessness in the mind, just thoughts, stray thoughts, stray memories, mental activity, that if we're not careful, we pay attention to, we get lost in, and then swept away by. So it's these three things, external disturbances, you know, the disturbances of our conditioned habits, arising out of greed, aversion, and delusion, And just random restlessness of the mind, mental activity. These three things we learn mostly by being burnt over and over again that a violent, aggressive, controlling approach doesn't work. You know, how many times have we been disturbed by external things and we, you know, exerted some sort of willful control aversion? And again, we get confused by that reactive pattern because sometimes it seems to work. You know, we yell at the neighbor who's making too much noise, and they quiet down. And so it seems, well, that's what I should do. Or we, you know, um, if there's something else, like uh, even pain in the body, you know, we can try to control it, you know, constantly adjusting the body to deal with the pain. And it goes away for a while. But what we've done is we've reinforced the pattern that pain is bad, can't be accepted, needs to be fixed. So in a way, we've made ourselves more vulnerable to what is inevitably going to keep happening. Disturbances, external disturbances are going to arise. There's an image from the Vasudhi Maga, which is a manual written uh, several hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And it's used quite a bit in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. It's you know it's a really big book. Um, there's some English translations now. And in one section of that, um, Buddha Gosa, the author, talks about... Um, the quality of mindfulness and it has a flavor of this nonviolent approach he talks about a lotus leaf floating in the water you know like a water lily and just sitting resting on the surface of the water and the the kind of skill it would take to make an incision to cut the lotus leaf with a sharp knife without Cutting the whole leaf in half, separating it, so you're just making an incision in the middle, and also not submerging the leaf. Just how full of care and tenderness and attention that it would take. And so, when, you know, this is so difficult for us because usually we're so far behind the game. We've been in a sense so pushed around by life, like the example I read, you know, the the disturbing flies, you know how that is when there are mosquitoes or flies bugging us. How just how disturbed the mind can get very quickly. We can be in the most beautiful place, spending hundreds of dollars carrying fifty pounds on our back for four days to get ourselves to a beautiful place you know, up in the mountains somewhere, and then the flies. And we can be in a, immediately, in, in a matter of a few minutes, in a, in a real hell uh, because of the mosquitoes or the flies or whatever insect. And so, you know, this, uh, this predicament of being mm-hmm. afflicted by life is just how it is for us. In so many different ways, and so the first step, you know, the first step in this nonviolent approach is to realize that these things that bother us externally, internally, or just the restlessness of the mind and body, just the generic restlessness of what's been set in motion, the mind and body—that this isn't a mistake. You know, this is how it is. We're in this together. And so that acceptance, you know, of the messiness of embodied existence is already this the beginning of this great movement toward kindness and acceptance. And we really learn something deep and basically something we can keep unpacking forever, like how to how to uh, have all of the attitudes our way of being, our way of relating, they should all have this pervasive flavor of kindness patience, (coughs) forgiveness, acceptance and not as some kind of stance like I should be kind, I should be generous, I should be forgiving but it's really coming from the ground up in a sense or from from wisdom like this understanding that anything besides kindness doesn't really make sense it just doesn't make sense it's really insane it's insane to feel like uh, like when the flies are bugging us whatever that might be in our life today you know think about whatever it was that bugged us today our own particular version of the flies it's really insane to somehow arrogantly believe it shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. You know, the traffic shouldn't be this way, or my knee pain shouldn't be this way, or I shouldn't be getting this cold, or this shouldn't be happening to me. You know, the stock market shouldn't be going down, or this thing shouldn't be happening at work. Because clearly, it is how it is. And it's like, a, you know, it's like if our job is to make an incision, a delicate incision on a floating leaf, it doesn't really help to complain that, you know, this is too hard or why did they put it on water, or, you know. It's just that's what life is asking. Life is asking for this very refined, wise way of being. And to keep pulling out this really big gun, you know, being angry or being controlling, and having life remind us over and over again, hey, this doesn't work. This rough approach doesn't work. In a way, we get beaten. We get beaten down until we realize that being rough, being aggressive, being in denial doesn't work. And we, we basically, if we have some awareness in our beating, our attitude gets refined. We become more tender. We become more patient. We begin to understand the value of kindness and how mindfulness is not different than kindness. Because what is, what is ultimately love? Well, love is just the, the ability to connect, the, the ability to be intimate. Well, how can we be intimate? Well, we have to open in a relaxed and clear way with whatever. That's the experience of love, the experience of intimacy, or what we call mindfulness, or simple, clear, loving presence, we could say. So that's the second. The first is mindfulness's capacity to illuminate, to tidy up the psychic space, to to reveal in a sense the lay of the land. And then mindfulness is this uh, value of kindness or nonviolence that is just um, really embedded or infused in the activity of mindful awareness. And the third aspect of mindfulness that Nyanapanika Tara mentions is the capacity of stopping, pausing, slowing down. And this is a really wonderful healing aspect of mindfulness. And probably many of you know this, some of you know this very well, how how healing it is to have some continuity of mindfulness. In the, the sense of stopping or slowing down, it's kind of a funny way. I probably wouldn't have described it in the way that Nyanapanika describes it. But what it really is, I think, is the more that we are mindful, the mind is clear, naturally clear, inherently clear, so this inherent clarity is there, not being disturbed by attachment, by clinging, right? So it's not like we have to have, okay, I'm gonna be really clear. That's not clarity, that's desire, right? Clarity is the natural state of the mind. So when the mind lets go of what's disturbing, like the image that's sometimes used is the surface of water. You know, when the surface of the water is being disturbed, the clarity goes away. You can't see through the water. But when we stop disturbing the surface of the water, the pond becomes still, and there's clarity there. You can see right to the bottom of the pond. So it's the same with the mind, when we are skillful enough to not engage in what is agitating and disturbing, greed, anger, and delusion, then things get really clear. And when there is a continuity of mindfulness, then that clarity, and clarity in the sense of depth, it's nice to have a certain dimension, dimensionality to the sense of clarity because that sense of clarity comes with a, a feeling of space or another word that's very useful to silence or stillness or depth or wholeness and it, it creates a context for what's moving so life is always going to be moving, sensations are moving Thoughts are moving, all aspects of this conditioned experience just alive with movement. That's just how it is, that's not a problem. That the continuity of mindfulness begins to reveal a sense of stillness or space or silence or wholeness in in a sense in the midst of that movement. And it makes it seem like everything is slowing down or the things that are moving, they're in a sense punctuated by stillness or silence or space. So instead of like one thing, when we're lost in thought, lost in emotion, lost in reactive patterns, there's like no space. We know what that's like. We've all, maybe today. We all get lost in emotional patterns and just reactive patterns. And it's like our life loses all sense of spaciousness, sense of wholeness, and we feel tight and fragmented and um, lost in that trap, in that pattern. And it's just the opposite when there's some mindfulness. So things could still be crazy. You know in terms of the life situation we're in the middle of it could be really crazy but somehow there's a direct experience of spaciousness even though externally you know in terms of the life situation it's crazy it's really busy it's really unclear what should be done it's really unpleasant but there's a sense of space there's a sense of silence a sense of wholeness. And then you see how that sense of space really allows for a different response to the ups and downs of life. So just because the situation is really wild or difficult, our response is going to be informed by specifically that difficulty. But it's not going to be flavored by tightness. Or reactivity. It's going to be flavored by a sense of space, a sense of perspective and stillness. So this is so useful because so much of what uh, is so unworkable and disturbing in life is we're not, the heart isn't being refreshed. It's like we're hunted running from our predator Or we're hunting, desperate to get our prey, whatever it is we think we need or want. And we're exhausted in running and grasping, pushing and pulling. And that just makes us more desperate to run away from our enemies and to run toward what we think is going to to alleviate our hunger. So we're desperate, which leads to more desperation. And when we start to, when we have enough momentum with mindfulness then it's like that hunger, that unceasing hunger begins to become extinguished for periods of time. (coughs) And, And in a way, the more we practice, the more difficult it is to forget that sense of space or ease. It's like we build up an immunity to difficult life situations. Does't mean we avoid, we, it doesn't mean at all that we're not going to have difficult life situations, but that in the difficult life situations, there's more immunity. We're less likely to take it personally, less likely to um, re- react with this inner affliction because externally things are crazy or difficult. And then the fourth, I'll just mention briefly, Jnana um, Panika talks about the directness of vision bestowed by bare attention or mindfulness. So he's talking directly about the liberating insight that arises out of a moment of mindfulness, because ultimately mindfulness means being open, being awake to Dhamma, how it is, not confused, but caught by the conceptual map or the thoughts about things. Let me just read what he says here. By directness of vision, we understand a direct view of reality without any coloring or distorting lenses, without the intrusion of emotional or habitual prejudices and intellectual biases. It means coming face to face with the bare facts of actuality, seeing them as vividly and freshly, as if we were seeing them for the first time. So this is something that, you know, it's not like later, but when we're with the breath. In fact, you know, one of the difficult parts of the technique of mindfulness of breathing is it's really easy, after a while especially, To strongly feel like, well, I already know the breath. Why do I need to pay attention to this breath? So, and then instead of actually being aware of the in breath, we're aware of the, we don't realize it, but we're thinking the thought, I already know the in breath. I don't need to pay attention to it. I can just kind of know that the in breath is over there happening, and I can do other things. You know, I can worry about this, I can plan that. So, Part of this uh, this aspect of mindfulness that cuts through conceptual overlay is that it opens us to what we call dhamma, the way it is. So dhamma isn't referring. You know, when we talk about dharma or dhamma as an experience, we're talking about not being confused by what we're taking the experience to be. Or the interpretation that we have. So we're stepping through that or beyond that, moving beyond that, and everything comes alive because it's completely new and fresh, like he says, as if for the first time. The breath is only boring when we're aware of our thought about the breath. That's really boring because it doesn't change that much. The thought I have about my breath now is not that different than the thought I had about my breath before, or a thousand times before. But this breath, this moment, the present moment, knowing the breath in the present moment, this is, you know, in the very real sense, this is the mystery, this is the unknown. And it's liberating to open to this. It's liberating because to really open to the in-breath or to the sound or to the movement of the arm, to open to anything completely means to let go of everything we know. We can't be attached to what we know and open to the present moment at the same time. So this directness of vision bestowed by their attention, it's really a direct, opening to what in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, we call the unconditioned. We're going beyond the condition to the unconditioned. The conditioned world is maintained by our thoughts about things. In a sense, the conditioned mind, the thinking mind, is defining experience. And it's possible not to be confused by that Habit of the mind, and to step into something beyond that. So I'll leave it here so we have time to check in with each other. Examples from your own life where you've seen the power of mindfulness to open up, to transform your experience, questions you have about the talk, any of these four aspects that I mentioned from Terra's article. Yeah. Please say your name. Mary. Hi, Mary.
0: I'm not sure that this follows, but there's this website that my friend told me about, and it's Decora Eagles. I don't know if you've heard about it. Mm-hmm. There's a webcam in an eagle's nest in Decora.
1: Well, yeah, I have heard about that.
0: And yeah, I started watching that. And there's something about watching these eagles that feels very um, calming. And it's really hard to explain. I kind of want to talk about it because I don't fully understand it. But it's sort of like I feel like I'm with the eagles. It's it's just a very um, sort of spacious feeling the eagles aren't doing much, they're only a few days old, you know, they flop around kind of and the parents come and it has a very calming kind of sustaining sense of all is well. And of course I have to work. So then I have to turn the eagles to that crowd. Even when I can't see them, I can hear them, Mm -hmm. so I like it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) well you want to look at that part too, and for depending on how our mind is conditioned, certain experiences will be doorways into a more natural way of being, right? So maybe for you, Mary, observing small eagles and the and the parents coming to feed them, and maybe for you, the naturalness of that and and maybe seeing those eagles, one of the things you're seeing is you're kind of imbibing a mind relatively unencumbered by concept, right? and just the naturalness of just doing what's next. I mean that's what natural creatures do. They just do what's next naturally, you know. And there's a lot of that, you know, one of the reasons we like to be out in nature, <coughs> both watching creatures but also just natural forces like wind and, and other things like that, the movement of water is that the movement of natural things don't don't aren't exhibiting this extra thing that the human mind has somehow magically developed, which is friction. You know, We have a way, through the force of ignorance and greed and aversion, we have a way of creating the experience of friction within natural <coughs> movement. Our life is also natural movement, but we have a way of creating the experience of friction in that, in a way that, uh, in, Life in sort of more natural settings, it doesn't seem as apparent to us. So clearly, the eagles have greed. You know, they, they want their food, but they're not proliferating around their desire for food. You know, or they have fear, but they're not thinking about their fear. So the simplicity of animals' minds or birds' minds can be a window sometimes for us to a more like the mind. It's almost like a sympathetic resonance. You know, our mind can begin to sort of become really simple in a way that we're you know, that we seeing as we observe others. It's the, why we'd want to be around the saint. You know, like some, let's say there's some woman who just is really free. You know, well, it'd be great to be around this person, because we could sympathetically vibrate with that person's sort of capacity to be open and clear and not disturbed by the coming and goings, by the ups and downs. And it's like so much easier to learn when somebody's modeling for us. It's the easiest way to learn. It would be a lot easier for us if there were a Buddha sitting here (laughs) talking about practice than me. But you know, this is what we get.
0: <laughs>
1: we must have been really bad in <laughs> Other thoughts if I have?
0: Yeah. Um, I've been, the more I practice lately, I've been falling into this feeling of, it's like a, some Coen Brothers films that I've <laughs> seen where it begins nowhere and it ends nowhere. And it's, it becomes really difficult because even when I, in, in deep moments of reflection, know that all I'm trying to do is if I just practice a little more, then everything's going to be OK. I'm, I'm moving or trying to find some way that I can gauge success, if you will, which is really difficult because the more you practice, you also realize there's no end to it. Uh, but how is it that you can have a path where you really feel like there's road? Without having some need that sort of marker, uh, so that's one. I don't know that it directly refers to the four, but that's one thing that yeah. more mindful has has led me to, and it becomes a little bit difficult and scary at times because the idea of having put that much effort and work into it is pretty daunting.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is. Uh, any kind of set idea like there's no end to it we want to notice that that idea is kind of heavy and hard and suspect you know any kind of arrogant notion there's no end to it there is an end to it problematic and of course you know just as a tradition a kind of a, a set of teachings the end is strongly taught there is an end this practice so any idea that there's not an end I mean just on this level it's not true I mean there is freedom and uh, you know the reason why uh, there's a real emphasis on the Buddha is he stands as a symbol for the thousands and thousands of men and women who have realized this end and if you ever ask, you know if they ever asked the Buddha what he does he says I teach suffering and the end of suffering So he was very much talking about the resolution of Dukkha, of suffering, as an end. So, now, that's problematic because we don't really understand, you know, initially we don't really understand what he's talking about. But I think it is appropriate to, um, to have some aspiration in the practice. That aspiration is what gets us to take a class, or gets us to go on retreat, or to do a daily sitting practice. (coughs) But then when we're doing the practice, although the energy from the aspiration might get us there, craving the end isn't the practice. So maybe that's the point you're making, that craving the end of suffering isn't going to lead to the end of suffering. It's suffering. also, thinking there is no end to suffering is also suffering. You know, as you you kind of shared with us, that's a frustrating, nihilistic sense. You know, to think, why am I doing this? Because then we have doubt, like, why bother if there's no end? And that's an oppressive state of mind. So, what I, what I would recommend is as you come to your practice with the energy of your aspiration, the, however, whatever faith you have, that whatever is afflictive in your life can be abandoned, can be put down. So you come to your practice with that. Then as you begin your meditation practice, then if we're interested in freedom from clinging, from grasping, from that inner affliction of mind, If we're interested in that, then that's what we practice. We practice not grasping, not clinging. So when you take up a technique like mindfulness of breathing, that may be what we're doing. We're being mindful of the in-breath and mindful of the out-breath, for example. But what we're really practicing is not suffering. So breathing in, not clinging, not suffering, not stressing. Breathing out, not stressing. And then we notice how tight the mind is, breathing in breathing out. And then it's just like, okay, what is the cause of this stress? How might the mind go beyond this cause of stress? Like how might the mind be mindful of the body or mindful of breathing without this stress? How to be free in this experience of sitting still for 30 minutes? How to be free? In fact, we can use that over and over again through the day. You know, okay, now i got to go to this business meeting. Okay, well, on this mundane level, my job is to convince these people to do that. But on the deepest, deeper level, my practice is to be free. You know, to be in this business meeting without perpetuating afflictive states of mind. And if there are afflictive states of mind, to be interested in them. Ah, what is this? What is the cause? What leads to the abandonment of this afflictive state? So we, this, the uh, issue of freedom is really deeply embedded, moment to moment, in our practice. And if we lose it, if our practice just is a chore that we have to do, then yeah, we kind of get in the state you described. So uh, through reflection, and then more directly through practice, See if you can integrate this wholesome, appropriate desire for release, the unshakable release of the heart, the ease, the peace, the wholeness of the heart. Because why else would we, you know, put our time into this practice? Thank you. Yeah. I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a moment and let go of the words. for these simple practical profound teachings and the men and women who did the practice what we call the Sangha those who've done the practice and realized the benefits and passed it on as best they could so that we can hear about the practice and have this opportunity to be part of the stream of wisdom developing wisdom and compassion and passing it along. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. I think Matt might have some announcements for us.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.